0: continue uh, our hiatus from 1 Corinthians today in light of the events coming this week and turn our attention instead to another of Paul's letters to the uh, Christians, to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 13. There I invite you to turn your attention. Actually, it's inserted in your bulletins uh, on the blue insert as well because there are some other relevant passages that I want to uh, read without necessarily taking the time to turn them all up in our Bibles. So if that's helpful for you. Uh, you've heard it uh, a thousand times, maybe not quite, you know, that's an expression of hyperbole, but uh, you've heard it a thousand times over the past year, reporters and pundits uh, speaking about the, the election that we anticipate this Tuesday and calling it unprecedented. Over the summer, uh, NPR documented 65 ways that this election is an unprecedented event, and perhaps it is in some ways, but to a Christians, in the most important uh, of ways, it is not unprecedented. Some of the circumstances may be unique, to be sure, but for those with eyes to see this, it is nothing more and nothing less than what God has been doing all throughout human history. Taking down leaders, raising up leaders, appointing leaders according to his perfect sovereign will. And contrary to what uh, maybe some of our more politically enthusiastic brothers and sisters in the faith have to say, the most pressing matter for us as Christians in America today is not scrambling to see the right candidate elected, but rather that we respond to that elected candidate rightly. There are principles for us as Christians, principles that transcend Tuesday, and it is those that we consider from God's Word now so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, no matter the name that appears in the headline of your newspaper on Wednesday morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, open your word to us, we pray. We want to be faithful children of yours, faithful citizens of the nation in which you have placed us, and faithful citizens of the kingdom to which we belong that transcends every national boundary, even time itself. Do this, we pray. Send thy spirit to do a great work in our hearts, that will also carry over into our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 13. We'll read the first seven verses. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities... to whom respect is owed, honor, to whom honor is owed. Well, the Bible has several passages that sound uh, similar and yet serve to fill out this picture wonderfully. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul writes this, "'First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions.'" that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. To another minister, to Titus, Paul writes, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. The apostle Peter agrees. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now at the rock bottom of all that scripture has to say and all of its ethical instructions, that is its commands to us with regard to our relationship to our civil authorities, is this fundamental truth. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by him, by God. Once a Christian understands that point, comes to grips with and submits himself to to that point, that is the that God puts the civil authorities into their offices, that God raises them up, that God takes them out, puts them down, kings and emperors, governors and presidents, then everything that the Bible has to say about our relationship to them makes perfect sense. Civil authorities are God's authorities. They are God's authorities over us. It's what Paul has said, and you know it's true. It is the implications of that fact that have to work themselves out then in our lives. And it's not difficult to, uh, to mark them under three basic headings. If the president elect on Wednesday morning is God's president elect, and that's our biblical conviction, then come January 20, there are three things that we must do with regard to him or her. Namely, Obey, pay, and pray. First, Christians, you must obey the civil government. In other words, you must submit yourselves. We must all submit ourselves to the rule that is over us. That's not to say it's always going to be easy for us, particularly if things continue in their current direction. In this nation of ours, indeed, it could become very, very difficult. Difficult for us. But for this unflagging obedience and submission, we have impeccable examples in the scripture. I'll name two of them for you Jesus and Paul. Remember that Jesus, as we confess from time to time in our our worship, uh, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Jesus submitted himself willingly to Pilate's questioning, persevering through the interrogation with perfect obedience. Paul, too, would submit himself to the government of Rome, even to Nero, even until we believe unto death. Christians continued thereafter for centuries, even in the teeth of terrible persecution, to take this same view and to render this same obedience to the civil government, to the state. And now Paul is going by the Holy Spirit to to give us three reasons why it must be so. First, you must obey the civil leaders for God's sake. And what that means, what I mean by that is God himself has put the civil leaders in their places. He raises up kings, he removes them. It's he, he who determines who shall rule. Who shall enforce the laws of the state? Who shall carry civil authority in in every place? John Stott counts in this passage three places where Paul affirms the state's authority to be God's authority and three times where he describes the state and its ministers as God's ministers. How about that for striking language? In other words, from the biblical perspective, Rome. And if you know anything about Rome, you might be rocked back on your heels to think of it. Rome exercised God's authority. Not her own. God devolved upon Rome his own authority. Same for our government. Whether in Washington, D.C., or Frankfurt, or Indianapolis, our governors, our president, our senators, our representatives, our, our judges, our policemen, all of them are simply exercising God's authority. My father used to like to remind me son, you're a minister of the word, and I'm a minister of the sword. We're both ministers. He was a police officer, I guess you're guessing. When that policeman pulls you over, stands next to your window of your car and puts out his hand, and requires your license and your proof of insurance. God is saying, I want your license and your proof of insurance. God exercises authority through the state leaders and the officers who are his ministers. A second reason why you must obey civil authority is for judgment's sake. Verse 2, therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist incur, incur judgment. The threat is plain. Dear flock, resist the civil authorities, and you resist God. And for that, for throwing off God's authority, there will be judgment. It's rebellion against God when you rebel against the orders of the judge. When you break the laws of the state, you're breaking God's laws. When you treat the policeman with contempt, you're treating God with contempt. And ultimately, we answer to him. And third, you must obey civil authorities for conscience sake. Verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. In other words, because a Christian understands this, because all of us in this room understand this fact that the civil authority is actually God, exercising God's authority. And he, because he may understand, we may understand that fact even better than the policeman riding in the squad car out on a 54 right now. We must live according to this understanding of ours. Our conscience is governed by our knowledge our attitudes and our actions when it comes to our state rulers from the president to the policeman must be governed by that that knowledge now, i know what you're thinking what some many of you are thinking right now you're asking but what if the civil authority requires me to do something that is disobedient to god requires me To disobey him, his commandments. Well, that's not really in view here. Of course, we could talk about the apostles. We could talk about how they said when they were told not to preach that we must obey God rather than men. And you're recalling the Hebrew midwives. I know you are. You're running through them all in your mind, aren't you? Who disobeyed the authority who told them to kill the Hebrew babies. And there are no doubt Extreme circumstances wherein we must disobey the state. Extreme, I call them, on purpose, my brothers and sisters. To obey your civil leaders, I'll say it again, even if it's becoming ad nauseum, is to obey God. To disobey them, to show contempt for them, is to uh, no matter how sinful they are, no matter how crooked they are, no matter how corrupt they are, is to disobey God and show contempt for him. Which brings me to the second point. Not only must we obey, Paul says, second Christians, we must pay. We must pay the civil government. Four things in particular we must pay to the state. First, Paul says, pay your taxes. Twice he talks about paying your taxes. The second time in verse 5, Paul uses a word that conveys the idea of paying back. Your taxes. In other words, this is something you owe to your government, to your civil government. The assumption is, of course, that you've received something from them. And especially where we live, it isn't very hard to find and see such things. Public roads, we use them every day. Public places for gathering, your local library, your park the protection and the services you expect from the police department and from the fire department, from the food inspectors, the USDA, the food that you buy at the grocery store, all these things your government provides for you. Now, Paul says, pay your taxes. As he implies, pay them back what you owe them. Now, you know your taxes are used for things with which you disagree too, with which you vehemently disagree. Things that otherwise violate your conscience. The government is taking the taxes from you to fund and to pay for and to promote. And so some Christians have even decided that they're not going to pay back the taxes that they owe. But that, dear flock, is not a biblical. Option for us. That is not a biblically viable option. And I only have to bring one person up to prove the point. Jesus. Jesus paid his taxes. And he paid his taxes to a government who used the taxes that Jesus paid for debased and rebellious, and warped, and sinful, and pagan causes. Christians have even found themselves in places where their taxes were actually used, at least in part, to persecute Christians. Justin, you remember, lived in the middle of the second century. He wrote a famous apology, uh, a defense of Christianity, in which he countered accusations frequently made in those days that Christians were disloyal to the state, that they made bad citizens. No, wrote Justin, he said the truth is the very opposite of what was being alleged There are no, not more obedient, loyal, hardworking, productive citizens in the empire than the Christians. These are the people, he said, who of all the people in the world live peaceable lives, can be counted on to obey all the laws. He went on to say that Christians always pay their taxes with exemplary faithfulness, something that could not be said of the ordinary run of citizens in that day. The empire, Justin said, would run far more smoothly if only there were more Christians, not fewer. Well, as it happened, it wasn't long afterward that Justin was himself dragged into a Roman court. He was accused of being a Christian. His accuser was apparently a rival teacher of philosophy who was uh, jealous of Justin's popularity and success. Six other Christians were dragged with him into the dock, apparently disciples of Justin. The judge was looking to find them guilty. Trials were often political affairs in those days. Wait a minute. In those days they were, In these days... The judge commanded the accused to sacrifice to the state gods. They refused. The judge, who was well known as something of a bully, questioned Justin about his beliefs, but the contempt in his voice made it clear that it was only a show. When he could learn no more about the Christian's beliefs, the judge came to the point... He asked each man in turn, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Are you a Each acknowledged that he was. Some were children of Christian parents and had been Christians from their infancy. Others were converted to the faith in their adulthood. Most, if not all of them, had been taught by Justin. They were not all clever, but uh, none of them wavered. They were threatened with flogging and with execution. Jeeringly, the judge asked Justin if he thought he would ascend to heaven. I don't think so, said Justin. I know and am fully convinced of it. After one last but equally futile attempt to get them to offer sacrifices to the Roman gods, the judge condemned them all to death by beheading. And that's how Justin came to receive the name by which he's known today and has been throughout history, Justin Martyr. This is the government to whom Justin Martyr faithfully paid his taxes. Not to put too fine a point on it, his taxes paid the ax man, the executioner, to drop that acts. And true to the last, Justin would have defended that obedience and required that obedience of his fellow Christians because God himself has made it plain in his word by both commandment and by example that Christians must pay their taxes and pay them faithfully and fully and promptly to their civil government. Second thing Paul lists, verse 7, that we must pay to our government is revenue. That is very close to taxes. It falls close to a sort of customs charge or taxation on possessions, particularly when there is one nation ruling over another group of people. But taxes and revenues are not the only things that you owe to your civil leaders, according to verse 7. You owe them two more things, respect. And honor. I won't treat them separately, but simply say that there is a way in which we must hold our state leaders at every level, from the White House to the patrol car, and at every point in between. There is a way that Christians speak about their leaders, no matter how contemptible they may be on a personal level. They are God's leaders because God placed them there. And for that reason and that reason alone, we must hold them with respect and with honor. It's a terrible indictment on the church that we should ever have joked and jibed with lines like, Slick Willie, when President Clinton was in office. Such things ought never to be found on the lips of Christians, no matter how terribly unworthy of respect individual state leaders may be in and of themselves. It is the office, it's the office established by God and filled providentially by Him that demands our respect and our honor. Several years ago, a policeman asked me those very questions that I mentioned, your license, your registration. I could see when the light hit his face that that officer was at least 15 years my junior. But I called him sir and answered him with proper respect why. Well, my own heart is deceitful even to me, but Hopefully somewhere in my rotten heart I knew that I owed him that. That kind of respect and honor. That officer, even if it's the furthest thing from his mind, is God's officer. He's God's man. And therefore, I honor him and I respect him because he's God's man. In a matter of months, our nation will have a new president and a new vice president in office. Whether they are to your liking or not, or even, and maybe this is hyperbolic language, I hope and expect it is, but even if the new president and vice president were to our demise, let us be true to God's commandments. Let us obey. Let us pay for those things we owe to the, well, to God's government. And then third and briefly, let us pray. First of all, then Paul writes to young pastor Timothy, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and those who are in high positions. Christians pray for their civil authorities. I find it striking that before he was executed by the very government to which he paid his taxes so faithfully, Justin Martyr wrote, Everywhere we more readily than all men endeavor to pay those appointed to you uh, by you the taxes, both ordinary and extraordinary, as we've been taught by Jesus. We worship only God, but in other things we will gladly serve you, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men. And praying that with your kingly power, you may be found to possess also sound judgment. Likewise, Tertullian writes in his third century apology, defense of Christianity, we offer prayer for the safety of our princes to the eternal, the true, the living God, whose favor beyond all other things they must themselves desire Without ceasing, for all our emperors, we offer prayer. We pray for life prolonged, for security to the empire, for protection for the imperial house, for brave armies, a faithful senate, a virtuous people, the world at rest, whatever as man or Caesar an emperor would wish. So, my brothers and sisters, we don't find ourselves today in an unprecedented election, do we? For Christians, there is all the precedence we need for, as Jesus said, rendering unto Caesar to pay, to obey, and to pray, just as our spiritual fathers and mothers did so faithfully before us. As our watching children must learn from us as they look And listen so closely to the way you and I submit to and speak of our civil authorities. The way that our children will teach our children's children to do the same. No matter how those governments and those leaders may treat them in return. Amen.